0: Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. ...that are called the Olivet Discourse. They took place just outside of the city of Jerusalem, just outside of the Temple Mount area on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus addresses his disciples. And so since he's there on the Mount of Olives, he it's referred to as the Olivet discourse, two chapters of material. Big chapters, too, 50 verses or so in each of those chapters. And what Jesus is doing, we see in chapter 24, verse 3, he's answering a question. Now the question in chapter 24, 3 was, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus now goes on to uh, for two chapters to explain the signs of the end of the age. And then Jesus takes it a step further because, quite frankly, Bible study isn't just about information. It's helpful to learn information. It's helpful to learn Bible verses and things like that. But it has to go beyond that. Amen. If it's just that we're going to get ribbons and win some tests and show everybody what we know and do well the once a week when they put Bible on Jeopardy or something so everybody around us is impressed, well, then we've missed the point altogether. The point altogether is to take the material and apply it to your lives. And so that's what Jesus is doing as he transitions from chapter 24, he did it right at the end of the chapter, into chapter 25, he's transitioning to this place of now, do something with the information I've given you. We saw actually in chapter 24, verse 32, as he begins to make the transition to application, he says, now learn the lesson of the fig tree. learn the information of the fig tree learn the lesson of the fig tree apply these things do something with these things and ultimately jesus's goal in all of this is that we would ready ourselves for his return these are the signs of my coming you're going to see famines you're going to see earthquakes pestilences the rebirth of the nation of israel the rise of the antichrist will be before that the abomination he gives all these signs abomination of desolation and so on when you see these things As it says in the parallel passage of Luke, look up, because your redemption draws near. You see, hear the information, learn the information, and respond to it. Look up, because your redemption draws near. And so make sure you are ready for action. Now, Jesus also makes it very clear that no man knows the day or the hour. And since no man knows the day or the hour that Jesus is going to return, although Chuck Missler once said it's going to be between 2 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the morning, I just don't know which time zone it's going to be, you know, so it's going to be somewhere between two o'clock and three o'clock in the morning that the Son of Man will return. But since no one knows the day and no one knows the hour, what we have to do is always be ready, particularly as we see these things coming closer and closer. And so just to quote real quickly before we jump in. Matthew chapter 24:36 and 44 say concerning that day and hour no one knows not even the angels therefore you must be ready because nobody knows the exact day or hour you just have to live a life of readiness now if you were with us last week and I understand a lot of you couldn't make it the weather Those three inches, you know, shake a lot of us here in the north. Oh, my gosh, it's an avalanche. already! And so if you weren't here, go back, listen. It's good to get the the full message, you know, as it was built up and so on over the 40 minutes or so. But last week we looked at one of the parables in Chapter 25. There's essentially three parables in Chapter 25, all of which are designed to accomplish the same purpose, take the material from 24, and make application. The first one was the parable of the 10 virgins. We read about it in verses 1 through about verse 13. And again, the parable of the 10 virgins is designed to teach us to be ready. In that parable, you have, if you weren't here, five foolish bridesmaids. And you have five wise bridesmaids. They're also they're called the ten virgins, five foolish virgins, five wise virgins. But these are bridesmaids whose job it was to be was to be ready for the return of the groom on behalf of the bride. They were part of the bridal party. and they would be ready. the groom would go away. We took some time to discuss how their weddings were a little different than ours. They didn't set an actual date. They knew that it was up there probably about a year from now. but what really determined the date, was when the groom had his home built that they were going to live in. And so he would go and he would prepare a place for them to live. Remember the words of Jesus? I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again. He's got this picture of himself returning for his church. Well, that was the idea of the day. The groom would go away, prepare a place, and he would come back. And so these bridesmaids, they could look at the signs They could see the house going up. They could see the roof being put on. They could see the sod being laid out front. Man, this is coming. It's closer and closer. We need to be ready. And as we looked in the story, there was five of them that were not ready. He comes at midnight. He comes at an hour that they do not expect. They have their lamps. They can light the wick, but it's not going to continue to burn because there was no oil to keep the lamp burning brightly for any length of time. And it seems that they had convinced themselves, you know what, we've got time. I'll deal with it when we get to that. And how many people put off things and say, I'll deal with it when I get there. I'll deal with it when I get there. And what we discover is when the Lord returns, there will be no time to deal with it when he gets there. And these bridesmaids, they run at that time to go and get some more oil or get some oil at all for their lamps. And the door to the wedding feast is shut, and they've missed their opportunity. He had come in an hour that they had least expected And the lesson we learned is today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to get ready. You know, I was thinking earlier, how often we talk to folks, we interact with people, and we're sharing, you know, what the Lord is doing in our lives and maybe speaking something into their lives about what the Lord might want to do. And how often we'll hear these stages of life delays. Well, look, I'm a young, I'm in high school. You know, when I get older, when I get settled, when I get to college, I'm going to get serious about Jesus. Or I'm in college, and hey, these are my fun years. I'm going to live it up while I'm here. And so, you know, but when I get out of here, I'll get serious about Jesus at that point. And then, you know, they're single and they're like, oh, it's bachelorhood time or bachelorette time or whatever. When I get married, or when we have kids, or when the kids get out of the house, or when I retire, and we keep putting it off, and the next thing we discover life is over, and you've missed your opportunity. Today is the day of salvation, the scripture makes clear. Now is the time to ready ourselves for the return of Christ, because when he does return, there won't be no time to ready ourselves. That's this first parable. Now, the second parable, very similar, a similar application. And we'll look at it here, starting in verse 14. I'm going to read up to verse 30. So follow along, please. It says, for it will be like the Son of Man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one servant he gave five talents, to another two, to another one to each according to his ability, and then the master went away. Now, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid what is yours. Hid your talent in the ground. Here, take back what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered, where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast this worthless servant into outer darkness, in that place that will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth." Now, this parable is similar to the last parable in that we have a circumstance where there are some in the parable that know the Lord and some that don't know the Lord. We saw in the parable of the ten virgins, you have ten virgins, bridesmaids, which essentially all look the same. They all got that matching dress that they all have to wear, at least the matching color and all of that. They're all holding a lantern or a lamp of some sorts. All of them on the outside look exactly the same. But what we come to discover is there's five over here that are very different from five over there. What we discover is, regardless of the fact that they might look the same on the outside, they're not the same on the inside. And so you have a parable where there are some that are believers and some that aren't. Here in this particular parable, we have the same circumstance. You have a parable that is designed to demonstrate there are some that are believers, and there is one, in this case, that is not. You have a mixed company of individuals, some that believe, and because they believe, respond according to that belief, and some that don't believe, and because they don't believe, or one that doesn't believe, because he doesn't believe, he responds accordingly as well. So let's dig in now and look at these folks. Verse 14 says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property verse 14 now there's five key terms parts of this parable that I want to draw your attention to initially the first is the word it the second word of the the verse there at least in my version the word man the word journey the word servants and the word entrusted we're going to look at those five things there and so let's start with the first one the word it It says, for it will be like a man going on a journey. What will be like a man going on a journey? Look back to chapter 25, verse 1, and it says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. So Jesus is using these two parables to explain what the kingdom of heaven is like and how the kingdom of heaven operates. And so that word, it, there is referring to the kingdom of heaven. The next word there is, it says, like a man going on a journey. Now, the man that goes on this long journey, the man represents the Lord. The long journey that he goes off on, it can represent a couple of different things to some degree. It represents, in one sense, the, the period of time between his first coming and his second coming. So when he would leave at the, res, uh, the ascension and so on, and he said, all right, here you go. I'm entrusting you with these things. I'll come back, and I'll see how things are going with it." So it kind of represents that but you can, you can look at it on a larger scale as well. It essentially represents your time here on the earth. Everyone that has ever lived has been entrusted with these talents, so to speak, and I'll explain that in a moment, but everyone has been entrusted with these talents, and the time that you have from when the man went away to when the man comes is your time here upon the earth to a lesser degree. Now you have the servants that represents anyone that has ever lived on the earth. Everyone will have to give an account. The scripture makes clear. And then notice it says they have been entrusted with the property, Uh, they're entrusted with the property of the master, the final key item of the parable to kind of get a, a feel for what it is before we really start digging in. And I would say that represents two things. It represents the lives that each one of us have been given, and it represents the information that every one of us has been given on the earth. No man, all men are without excuse, the scripture says. Ultimately, what's the information you've been given is that there is a way of salvation and there is only one way of salvation and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, application is often made of this passage, particularly if it's not in the context of a study of the whole book of Matthew or something. And so you're gonna have a prayer breakfast or something and you say, you know what, we're gonna look at this passage right here. Turn and and you randomly open up your Bible to this place here. Application is often made that the talents refer to your gifts and abilities and resources and time and what has God entrusted to you and are you using that for good? And certainly I think that's a valid application because the Bible teaches that in other places as well. I don't think that was Jesus' point in this particular passage. I think the context of where we are and what Jesus has been saying reveals to us that Jesus had another intention altogether, ultimately, to drive home this point, there will be a day of reckoning, the master is coming, will you be ready? I think that's ultimately his point. I do think you can make that other application, because the Bible makes it elsewhere. But I I would also say we want to be careful, as students of the word of God, that we're not just getting the Bible to say certain things that it wasn't intending to it to say. We want to have a respect for the word of God and what the word of God is trying to communicate and be uh, people of integrity with it. But anyhow, we'll, we'll talk about all those things here. Let's go on to verse 15. It says, now, the one he gave to the one he gave five talents, another two to another just one, each one according to his ability, and then he went away. And Now, that's not an unusual scenario, both in Bible times and in our times. We have instances where there are wealthy individuals that may own a lot of property or a lot of resources, and they will entrust that property and trust that resources to someone else because they live five states away. And in that day as well, you know you might have some wealthy people that would live somewhere else, and so they would entrust their resources to others. They give them instructions here, "I trust you, you have certain abilities. take what I'm giving you, turn a profit. I'll be back next year to check in on you." And that, that's a scenario that we have here. He invests his money really in people. And he says to these people, go and turn a profit. Notice verse 15. He selects three individuals, but notice each one according to their ability he selects. And I think that's significant. We'll talk about that as we continue to move forward. And as we see, he entrusts to one five, to another two, and to another one. Now, The choice of the word talents. Does everyone's Bible have the word talents? I didn't take a look at other versions. Um, The choice of the word talents is, I think it's a little bit of an unfortunate choice of words because in our mind, we have a word in our language for talent, gifts, skills, abilities, and things like that. And so I think our mind automatically goes there and we begin to think, all right, what are my skills? What are my abilities? What can I be using for Jesus or whatever? But that really wasn't what Jesus meant the word talents there was a system of measurement. It was essentially the amount of weight a man could lift. That was a talent, and eventually it became uniform. So it got like Mark super big and strong. He can lift three hundred pounds or whatever. And a little fellow like myself, you know, one hundred and fifty. And so we said, we'll just call two hundred pounds. So a talent is worth two hundred pounds. That's what the average man could lift. And now a talent became equivalent to a system of money measurement now. And so you think about it here, put your bag out and I'm gonna pour a talent's worth of money in there and it became equivalent to 10 years wages. And so it kind of morphed the thinking, the idea of what a talent was morphed. And so a talent was 10 years wages. And so here in our story, Jesus is painting this picture, 10 years wages. That's a lot of money. He's painting this picture of three different men all of which were entrusted with a whole lot of money and entrusted to go and do something with it, take that money and turn it to a, to a profit with it. The first one, five talents. Now, 10 years wages for one talent. This guy is given 50 years wages. That's a lot, 50 years wages. The next guy, two talents, even that, 20 years wages. And the last one is given one talent. man, like, ah, he's just got one talent. That's 10 years wages. I don't know how much money you earn in a year. Let's just assume that the average of our crowd here is 50 grand. Imagine if somebody laid down in front of you 50 grand times 50 years. That's, if you didn't have your calculators, that's $2.5 million the first guy was entrusted with. The second guy, to put it in our language, was entrusted with a million dollars, and the third guy with $500,000. So even though he was only given one talent, if somebody handed you $500,000, my wife, she was talking recently, said, you know what? Let's see if we can help the kids you know, develop you know, and learn and grow and all this. And so she had this idea, and she didn't tell my kids yet. One's here, so uh, I don't know if we're going to do it or not. But I'll <laughs> throw it out there. She said, what if we gave each kid $500 bucks and had them go create a business and turn a profit or whatever? And I was like, oh, you got $500? You know what We got three kids. Or whatever, but she kind of had this idea, like let's give them some money; they can turn a profit and see, you know, what they can do with it, and start her money or whatever. Well, imagine if somebody handed you five hundred thousand dollars, or two point five million, and said, "Hey, you know all those dreams you have when you're walking the treadmill, and you're like, I could create a business if I just had some money." Well, now you got the money. What are you going to do with it? And so these guys are given tons of money, quite a bit of responsibility. We look in verse sixteen. The first one, clearly, he immediately gets to work. It says, now he who received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So this guy immediately gets to work, and through his hard work, through his diligence, through his abilities, we see in the passage he doubles his master's money. Second guy, he's only given two talents, but notice he too doubles the money that was entrusted to him. So presumably works hard, uses abilities, gets to work, isn't lazy, and and so on. Now we have the third and final servant, and really I think this is who Jesus would have us look at. This is the whole point. Are you gonna be ready for the day of reckoning when the master returns? We see this third and final servant, and I think Jesus wants us to draw our attention to him uniquely. He's the one that serves as a warning for you and I in light of all that Jesus has said in these last two chapters. And so we read of him in verse 18, the one who received the one talent, he went and dug in the ground and he hid his master's money. Now, the parable doesn't tell us, but the implication, if not directly stated, was that each of these servants were to take the money, do something with it, and make a profit. That's the implication of what's going on here. So Jesus said, take the money and do something with it, or excuse me, the master. Take the money and do something with it. And by do something, I'm pretty certain it didn't mean go dig a hole and put my money in it. I could dig my own hole. I want you to do something, invest it, and turn a profit. But this guy, instead, that's what he does. He digs a hole. Verse 19, now after a long time, the master of those servants come. They settle accounts with them. This guy said there would be a day of reckoning, and you know what? There's a day of reckoning. Jesus said he would come again, and you know what? He's going to come again, and there will be a day of reckoning. And so this fellow here, uh, he returns. The master returns. as a day of reckoning. That's the whole context of this parable in chapter 24. Will you be ready when he returns? Verse 20, the first guy didn't know when he was going to come back, but he was ready and that's the, the point of the parable of the virgins. You don't know when he's going to come back, but you better be ready. And so it says that he receives the five talents. He comes forward, brings five more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five. Here's five more. The master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Look at verse 22. Same idea, the guy with two talents. Do take notice. He turns in two more, doubles it, just like the first guy. Same message to him. Master, you delivered to me two. Here I've made two more. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Same exact words. Same exact commendation. So a couple things that I want to draw your attention to. And the first is that both of these guys received the exact same response from their master. They did different work. The one guy brought in five million more dollars. In turning a, doubling uh, the talents that he' had given. He did more work here, but he doesn't receive extra applause because he accomplished more, so to speak. Well, you, you earned five million. Wow, I'm really excited with you. You over here, what you earn? Two and a half million? Mm, good try. You know, pretty No. They both receive the exact same response where it says, "Well done, good and faithful servant." And that's the, the first point that I want to make to you is they are not judged on the amount of profit they returned. They're judged on their faithfulness. And that's how you will be judged. And so you could receive, if you will, a bigger reward than someone that's accomplishing amazing things or whatever for the Lord. It's based on faithfulness. And so you may have a small task to do and be completely faithful in that task. That's what you'll be judged on, your faithfulness. You may have a large task to do and be doing lots of things, but not really faithful to what God called you to do. And so you'll be judged on that little bit of faithfulness that you have. Does that make sense? And so that's the first point that we have here, is they're not judged on the amount of profit they return, but they're judged on faithfulness in doing something with that which God had entrusted them to you. And that's what you and I will be judged on as well. And so I think it's a good point to make some application, just simply to ask ourselves, what is it that I have been entrusted with? Certainly the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you know that every person that you encounter, every time you flip on the TV and you watch the news and you see all the people and you, every time you go to the mall and you see lots and lots of people wandering around, every person there that you encounter will one day come before Jesus Christ. Amen. And they will be judged based on what they did with Jesus Christ. Amen. And you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have already come to learn that there's one way of salvation. That's through the work of Jesus Christ, that the sin problem can be dealt with. You've been entrusted with something of great value. What have you done with that? What are you doing with that? Do you share that with anyone? Do you communicate that with anyone? Do you pray for anyone that they might have their heart open to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ? There's a great deal that you have been entrusted with. You take it a step further, though, you make application in a broader sense. What are the gifts you've been given? What are the abilities that you have? What are the resources that you have, whether that be time or money or skills or whatever? What are you doing with those things? Are you using them to advance the kingdom of God? And, you know, some of us here, we might have a very keen intellect, which is really, we get it. We're bright. We understand things or whatever. Are you using that for the advancement of the kingdom of God? Some of us have ability, unique ability, perhaps, to just communicate. And we could just say things in a way that people seem to get it. We're like a teacher a communicator in that regard? Do you use that ability to communicate to advance the kingdom of God? Some of us have the financial resources. Do you use those financial resources in a way that is sacrificial to advance the kingdom of God? You know, even things like, maybe the Lord has entrusted into your care a child or a group of children, or maybe you're a grandparent. Do you take that responsibility, those that have been entrusted to you, and do you advance the kingdom of God? Are you being faithful So much so that when you come to the end of your days, you'll come into the presence of the Lord and he'll look at you and say, Well done. Well done. But Lord, nobody even knows my name on that planet. But you've been faithful to what I called you to do. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. That should be the allure of all of us. That should be the drawl of all of us that we will hear that day. Again, it's not the size of your impact that he will measure, but your faithfulness with which that which was entrusted to you. So, again, are you being faithful? That's one takeaway. Now there's a second takeaway, and I'm going to tell you about it in a minute. <laughs> second one, I would I'd love to take I, this. Really got me excited as I was looking at this. I hope it does you as well. And that is, take notice of the way in which God works through His servants. So we've already seen in the parable that the Lord gives His servants resources to accomplish what He has called them to accomplish. Okay, so He's not out there saying, look. I need you to reach the world for the kingdom of God and figure out how you're going to do it and get back here and have it done by, you know, the end of time or whatever. But he gives resources to his servants to accomplish his purposes. That's the first thing. The second thing, we don't have it here, but we learn it in other places in the scripture. We learn it in Paul's writings in particular. And that is that the work that he has resourced us to do even that very work He does in and through us. Amen. And so we read this in Philippians chapter two, where th- this, there's a lot. You can read it up there; it's on the screen. But it says, "For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure." So He takes the resources that He's given you and works through you. Notice also Colossians chapter one twenty nine. He says, "I toil for this. I toil, struggling with all of His energy that He powerfully works within me." So he gives you the resources, then he works through you using those resources, and then as we see in our passage, then he blesses you for the work that he did with the resources that he gave you. Isn't that a pretty cool system, how that works? And our job, we'll talk about it later, but our job is simply to say, all right, Lord, then use me, work through me, and make yourself available to him. We have a friend here, Susan Ruckman, she comes to church here. She's had pneumonia. Pray for her about six weeks now, I think five weeks at least, that she's been out and, and the lungs. And she started feeling better. then she took like a 40-minute walk the other day. And it was a bad idea. And now she's sad she's not here. But if, if she were here today, you know what she would say right now? Some of you know. She would say, how great is that? Or whatever. Because she always says that phrase in that way. This is great. This should be an a, a incredible encouragement to anyone that wants to be used by the Lord, but kind of looks at their lives and say, I mean, what can I do? What can I do? I don't have really any gifts or abilities or resources, this or that. I'm just a guy. I'm just a gal or whatever. Well, he gives them to you. Then he works through you. And then he blesses you. So that should be a great encouragement to each of us. Just a couple of quick things we learned from these, so to speak, good servants. Now, there's a third servant. And it's unfortunate. You would just hope everybody was good. But unfortunately, you have a third servant. He'll be called wicked in a few moments here. He's got to give an account too. And you may recall, he's the one who just took the talent and buried it in the ground. Took the $500,000 and just buried it away. Didn't even put it in the bank to earn 1% interest. You know, like, I don't know why we do that anymore. But nonetheless, it says in verse 24, the one who received the one, he comes back. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went, I hid your talent here. You can have what is yours back again. He just returns exactly what was given to him now if we look at these three together they did pretty well they were given eight talents if you added up five two and one they returned back 15 talents so as a group they did great but we know the scripture makes clear we're not judged as a group each one of us is judged individually when the day of reckoning the day of reckoning comes it's not a group assessment all right so how did the downs family do you know, or whatever. How did that particular family do? How did the, the church of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County do? That's not how we're going to be judged. It's how did you do. And every one of us will come into the presence of the Lord. And just like that passage that we saw last week, the passage of the 10 virgins, do you have oil for your lamp? After do we collectively have enough oil to share with one another. Do you have oil for your lamp? And so each one of us will have to come before the Lord. And so as we consider this fella, let's be gracious. Let's commend him for a couple things. Number one, we can commend him for this. He has enough sense to give back to the master that which the master had entrusted to him. So he didn't take the money and be like, party time. All right, I'm going to go out and buy a nice house and a boat and this or that. He, He realized this is not my money. And that's the second point. He realized this is not my money. I've been entrusted with this. So we can commend him a little bit. You know, I think there's a lot of people that the Lord has entrusted with certain things, money, resource, gifts, ability, and they look at it and they think it's theirs. Look at all the money I got. Oh, you know what? What do I need? Uh, three houses. I need three. I need one up in New York, one down in Florida, one in New Jersey. You know, I'm sorry, our current president. Forgive me. Uh, or whatever. You know, but we look and we say, you know, I need some more. I need a boat. I need this. I need that. I need this. Do you really need all that? Well, it's my stuff. I can do whatever I want with my stuff. No, it's the Lord's you've been entrusted with that? Are you using it for the kingdom of God here? And so we could commend this guy for at least realizing it's not his, it's the master's, and giving all of it back to him. So he gets a little bit of commendation, but clearly he's brought up in this passage for the more glaring faults in the servant's thinking that have to be addressed. And so he's got some good points about him, but somebody has even said, hey, the Titanic had really nice deck furniture, but all that deck furniture went under as well. And so this guy's got some positive points in his life, but there's more glaring faults that are going to bring about his downfall. And so we look at this guy, and what we notice first is that he comes to his master, and he says, I knew you to be a hard man. Now to that I respond, really? Is this master a hard man? If I were to pull the guy that made 500, whatever it was, $5 million, if I were to pull him in, and ask him, is the master a hard man, would he say yes he is? If I, the guy with two, would he say yes he is? No, what they would say is, no, let me tell you about my master. My master gives me all these resources, tells me to do a job, then he comes and does the job, and then he commends me and gives me a promotion for the job he did with the resources he gave me. You know, my master's not a hard man at all. He's a great guy. But this guy says, I knew you to be a hard man. And in saying I knew you to be a hard man, what he's saying is, I don't know the master at all. Because if he knew the master, then he wouldn't have said the things that he said about this particular guy. So that's the first thing. He doesn't know the master at all. Secondly, notice what he does. He essentially accuses the master of being a thief. He accuses the master of being a thief. What he says is, you reap where you did not sow. You gathered where you scattered no seed. Seed, I should say. He says to him, hey, look, you know, I know you to be a guy where everyone else does all the work, but you take all of the profit." He says to him, you're unfair, you're mean, I don't like you, and so I'm not going to work for you. That's what this guy is essentially saying to this man here. Nowhere does he say, well, I didn't do anything because I'm a lazy bum. Rather, he puts the blame on the master himself. I didn't work because you're unfair. I didn't work because you're mean. You steal, you take from people stuff that you don't even work for. Ultimately, his reasoning shows the problem is not his. The problem is the master. It's as if he says, if you weren't so mean and unfair, I would have responded differently, but you are. I love the master's response. Some might expect the master to say, oh, thou art right. I'm so sorry I offended thee. Please give me another chance. The master doesn't say that at all. The master just jumps right into it, and he says to him, you wicked and slothful servant. I'm not even going to get into your excuses and your reasonings for why it's my fault that you didn't do anything, I'm just going to call it what it is. He says, you're a wicked and slothful servant. He said, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed, so you should have done something, but you didn't do anything. I added that. He says, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I would have at least received back something with interest. And then he says to presumably people around him, take the talent from him, give it to him who had ten for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, cast him into outer darkness. Notice he begins by calling him a wicked and slothful servant. We were talking in the first service, there was that movie Zootopia, which I believe is a, like a children's cartoon thing, but it shows this sloth working for the DMV, which it describes it pretty accurately, you know, or whatever. And this sloth is moving incredibly slow through the whole process. It's just this slow-moving, lazy being there. He calls him a wicked and lazy individual. But what he's saying there is he's addressing the circumstance in particular, but we can extrapolate from it. He says, you knew what I would expect of you, but you didn't do anything about it. There was no response that moved you to action. Remember, that's the whole purpose of these two parables is to take the information I told you about the signs of my coming and do something about it. You knew that I was coming back. I expected something of you, but you made no effort to ready yourself for that day of reckoning. He says you should have at least done something in response to my return. Instead, you go and you dig a hole and then you blame me and you say it's my fault for why you dug a hole. In your hard-heartedness, in your vindictiveness, you blame me for your inaction, and I won't be blamed, God says, or the master in this case says. And so the wicked servant is held accountable. What was given to him was taken from him. That opportunity he had, whether it be with the message of the gospel, if you want to take it to that, or the skills and the gifts and the abilities to serve the Lord, that opportunity that he had in this life was taken from him. And there was no additional opportunity for for him in the next life. It says that he was cast into the place of outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The scripture makes very, very clear, and I believe we, I think we all know this. There is a window of opportunity for humanity to get right with God, Amen. and that window of opportunity is either this time here on the earth or a person's individual life that they are living. But there's a window of opportunity, and even now it's closing. And soon it will be closed. And there are eternal consequences for those that miss that window of opportunity. And so get ready. Jesus said he's coming. Will you be ready? Now, as I look at this chapter, there's a lot of points of application. I do believe first and foremost, to be honest to the text, the first one is Jesus Christ is returning. Will you be ready for his turn? I believe that's a return. That's the ultimate application that the Lord would have for this. And you say, well, you know, I'm not really sure. I think, I hope. You can know. See, what we know in the scripture is this, that every one of us that lives, every one of us in this room, every one of us outside of this room, we have a sin problem. We sin a lot. And because we sin, whether it be one time or a million times, because we sin, we are separated from a holy God. And that's it. Nothing you can do about it. Sin separates from a holy God. You can't do anything about it, but he did something about it. And he sent forth his son to take away and to pay the penalty of our sin. And so you have a sin problem. Have you done something with that? Have you come to Jesus Christ who can take away your sins? You need to. So that's the first point of application. When he returns, has your sin problem been dealt with? Point number one. But I think there are other applications as well. One, the second one is we've taken notice of the way in which God works through his servants. And that is, again, that he entrusts them, entrusts them with certain things, gifts, abilities, resources, time, finances, and so on. Are you using those resources to accomplish his purposes? And again, remember, he entrusts you with it, and then he works through you. Are you making yourself available that he might use you? You'd be wise to do so. I think a third application is simply this. What are you doing with that which has been entrusted to you? Are you faithfully using it to advance the kingdom of God? Or are you faithfully using it to increase your level of comfort here on the earth? Are you faithfully using it to spend your time on yourself? Are you faithfully using it to raise up your name instead of raising up his name? What are you doing with that which the Lord has entrusted to you? Now, many of us, I'm sure, we hear that and we say, well, the Lord really hasn't entrusted much to me. I'm just an accountant. I'm just a computer guy, I'm just a housewife, I'm just a this, I'm just a that. And we can kind of minimize where we are in our lives or look at our lives and say, look, I'm not really somebody significant, what could he do with me anyway? May I remind you that even the one that was given one talent was given $500,000 to play with, to invest, to use, to advance the kingdom of his master. No matter where you are in life, you were entrusted with a great uh, opportunity But even more so than that, even if you weren't entrusted with some great opportunity, say he gave you $500, even more than that, you're judged not on your return, but on your faithfulness with what it is you were given. And so, again, are you being faithful with that which was entrusted to you? It's a helpful reminder, this parable, that is, is a helpful reminder to us to present ourselves to God and that which he has entrusted us into our care and to ask ourselves, am I taking that stewardship seriously? Am I being faithful with the opportunities and the resources that entrusted to me? Now, there's one other point that I want to draw your attention to. This is in verse 15. Notice back in that verse, it said, he gave one five, another two, and another one. And then it says, each according to his ability. Each servant in the parable was entrusted with that which the master knew they were capable of being entrusted with. I think that's a great truth to rest in. Because the Lord's not saying to me, hey, you know what? I'd like you to replace Billy Graham. I want you to travel all over the world. I want you to get up in front of, you know, a billion people a year. And I want you to advance the kingdom in that way. Most of us would be like, I can't do that. I don't know how to write a message. I don't know how to speak in front of people. I get tongue-tied. I'm afraid. I don't like flying, you know, and all these things. And the Lord has not asking you to take over Billy Graham's ministry. The Lord will entrust to each one of us that which he would have us to do according to our ability. What that means is he sets us up for success. And so if the Lord were to put me or let's just say I was thrown onto a major league baseball field and say, all right, that guy's throwing 100 miles an hour. I need you to get a hit. What? I haven't picked up a baseball bat in years or whatever. However, if he sends me down to the little league field, That little 12-year-old kid is out there throwing it. I'm taking that thing yard. You see what I'm saying? I can do that. Put me there. He sets us up for success. He's not going to put us in a place that will ultimately cause us to fail. You see what I mean by that? As we keep our eyes on him. And, you know, as I was thinking through that, that's the testimony of Scripture. And so I just allowed my mind to kind of work through the pages of Scripture And you go back and you look at the characters of Scripture. That's exactly what God did all throughout the Bible. That's what he did with Abraham. And it's what he did with Joseph. And it's what he did with Moses. And what he did with David and Daniel. And then you make your way into the New Testament. How he takes a fisherman like Peter. And a guy like Paul. And another apostle like John. And every way through there, Ruth and Esther and all these people, he puts them in a place where they can do what they can do in the place that they were placed so that he can have success through them and accomplish his purposes. And so that means he's setting us up for success. Why wouldn't we go out there and serve the Lord? Why wouldn't we go out there and use that which was entrusted to us? Because we know we're going to be successful. He gifts a person. He then uses the gifts through that person. He then rewards that person. So your response is simply to be like little Samuel, you may recall little Samuel, he would go on to be an old guy, but early on in little Samuel's life, he was entrusted to the care. He's like an apprentice to the priest there in the temple or the tabernacle there. And little Samuel, one evening, is sleeping and he hears a voice say, Samuel, come here, I need you, essentially. Samuel, Samuel. So he gets up and he goes to his master and he says, Yes, sir, I'm here. And he says, Why are you waking me up? I didn't call you. He goes back to bed. Goes back to bed. Samuel, Samuel. Gets up, goes to his master. You called me? I'm here? He says, I didn't call you. And then he realizes, you know what? Maybe it's the Lord calling this kid. He's five years old, six years old, 10 years old. I don't know how old he was. He, maybe it's the Lord calling this kid. He says to him, if you hear the voice again, call you. You say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That's God. And so the kid goes back to his bed, Samuel, Samuel. He was called. He was entrusted with a ministry. And he said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. That's what the Lord would have for each of us, is to say, I am ready, Lord, To serve you as you would have me to serve you, whatever that might look like, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And then I'm also reminded in the New Testament, you have the story of Mary, the account of Mary receiving the calling to to bear, is that the right term? Bear the Lord Jesus in her womb. She's going to be the mother of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And she is getting this information. She doesn't understand it. She didn't read the story. You did. You think you're smarter? you're not. You know, she is like, what is going on? She said, I don't understand. I've never been with a man. How could I be pregnant? And he explains it to her. That still doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? There's a process. I saw the video in high school, you know, in health <laughs> class, or whatever. Still doesn't make any sense. How's this going to happen? But she says, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Amen. Handmaid of the Lord means behold the servant of the Lord. She says, Essentially, what Samuel says, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I'll do whatever you want me to do. She makes herself available to the Lord. And that's the response I suggest that the Lord would have for each of us, to say, all right, Lord, here I am. Work through me as you will. Accomplish what you want to accomplish. I make myself available. I ask myself, am I doing that? And you say, of course you are. Greg, you're preaching. you prepared your message. Certainly you're doing that. Am I really doing that? Are you really doing that each day of the week, Not just when you get ready for all the church to gather or whatever, but are you doing that when you're sitting in the lunchroom at work? Are you doing that when you're around the home? Are you doing that when you're interacting with your neighbors and folks in the sports league or whatever? Are you doing that? Are you making yourself available that God might work through you? And as I take inventory of my life, I have to say, not as often as I would like and not consistently as I would like. I think the Lord wants to do an increased work in my heart, and I'm sure he wants to do it, In your life as well. And so if I could suggest, I think the takeaway then from this passage is to simply say, Lord, have I really submitted my life to you? Have I really? You may be a Christian, but have you really submitted your life? Because I think oftentimes what happens is, you know, we look at our lives and we say, this is my life. This is my life. This is my time. This is my money. These are my abilities. All right, Lord, you're asking me for it? Hold on, let me see. All right, let me check my calendar. Lord, I can fit you in between 2 and 4 on Sunday afternoon, but I don't think I can offer you much more than that, Lord. And we kind of squeeze out the Lord. We squeeze out the Lord in so many different ways. And again, have we really submitted our life to the Lord that it is his? Are we really pouring out our life for the advancement of the kingdom? Think about this wicked servant. Last point I'm going to make. Think about the wicked servant. He didn't take his money and go live like the prodigal. He didn't go out and rob banks and kill people and do all kinds of stuff. The worst thing I can always think of, he didn't go and kill little kittens or something like that. He simply didn't respond to this promise that the Lord was returning, to this invitation to be involved in the Lord's work. And yet the Lord calls him a wicked and slothful servant. May that never be said of any of us in this room, Amen. that our lives were wasted away in laziness but rather that we return back to the Lord, that which he entrusted to our care with a prophet. Amen? Would you agree? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a challenging uh, way to conclude, certainly, our message. And Lord, uh, I must confess, we appreciate that, even though we may not appreciate that. Lord, we know that sometimes it's hard to hear and consider and to read aspects of the word of God, and it, it can leave us in a place that's a little bit uncomfortable. But... Lord, we, uh, we delight in this fact that you are a good master, that you love us and you want good things for us, and sometimes there is, involves a, ch- a challenge uh, to who we are in our natural man that has to be dealt with and rooted out. And so, Lord, thank you for doing that uh, this morning, bringing a, a challenging word to our hearts, Lord, that we might take it. We might take inventory of our lives. We might get honest with you. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to do business with each of us, would that you would root out areas of self and selfishness. You'd root out areas of even sort of this idea of a self-condemnation. I got nothing to offer. Certainly, if we have the foolishness of thinking like this last servant that says, you know, I ain't going to do anything. God, you owe me. I don't owe you. Lord, all of that thinking that you would root it out and instead we would come back, we'd return to you like Mary, like Samuel, like so many in the scripture that said, all right, Lord, I don't have a lot to offer, but you can use me as a vessel. Fill me up, work through me. And so Lord, do that work through and in each one of us. We pray in Jesus' good name, Amen. amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.